it's great to be here today. I hope um, it's a pleasure for you. It's certainly a pleasure for me. It's wonderful to be part of the worship today. It just felt like heaven touched earth today. And it's great to be surrounded by uh, all the insignia of the Olympic Games. I've, of course, reminded that it's still family camp and it's not really anything to do with the Olympic Games at all, but it's great to have all these things around us. And uh, someone uh, in the prayer time before the service said, um, you know, what is the illustration this week that's going to top dog food last week? And um, we've got a live mouse on stage and I'll, I'll eat that later. <laughs> no, we're not going to do anything like that. So over the next two weeks, we are going to look at a fundamental milestone in the mission of God. We've seen several fundamental milestones. We've seen many markers along the pathway. Of course, we've seen the, the coming of the Spirit as he fills the church and reveals in sign and symbol, in word and power, that each individual and collectively together, the people are now the temple of the living God. We've seen how God has shaped his church in the large gathering and in the household meeting. We've seen that, we've seen that the household meeting is the place where people would break bread and remember Jesus and the large gathering is the place where teaching and inspiration and signs and wonders would be seen and established in the heart of the people. We've seen the emergence of persecution. We've seen the great marker that God identified by the first African missionary being sent back to Ethiopia to the court of Queen Candace as Philip is sent by an angel to share the good news with the first African believer after the day of Pentecost. What a great day that was for the great church of Africa. No doubt the largest church in the world right now. And then we have today's message and next week's message. The message of how Peter encountered the centurion Cornelius. Of course, we've seen converted Jews who have gone back to their various homes after the day of Pentecost, full of the Spirit, having heard the good news, being baptized into the name of Jesus. But this is the first occasion when a Gentile non-convert to Judaism a man who is simply a God-fearer, a man who has recognized that the, the polytheism of his background is, is not enough to satisfy the, his spiritual hunger. He, he knows that there's only one God and he, he, he recognizes that that one God is the God of the people of God. And he's longed for a deeper connection. And he's lived a life of piety and generosity. And God marks the day when the Gentile mission begins 
with great revelation, great power, and great grace. We saw last week how Peter is there on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. He sees the blanket lowered down from heaven and all of those unclean animals, four-footed creatures, birds of the air that he's not allowed to eat as a Jew and God says, kill and eat. We've seen that and we've discussed together the question of contamination and whether we fear it. And the story picks up right in the middle of verse 23. Peter has invited in the servants and soldier who's been sent by Cornelius, who's been, who's been told by an angel to go and find Peter. And we pick it up right there. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him stand up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Next week we'll continue with Peter's presentation of the gospel and the immediate aftermath of that amazing first sermon to the Gentiles. But today we're going to pause and we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that God is saying to us through this scripture? What is it that he wants to impart to us today? What is it that he wants to invest in us today for a great return in the future. And I'm conscious, as I am every Sunday, that we're surrounded by the chariots and the horsemen and the host of the living God. Witnesses in heaven right now lean over the balustrade of heaven. 
straining to see what it is that might happen here today. Demons and devils have been forced away. God has set us in a circle of fire that we might receive what he wants to give to us. And so what is it that God wants to say? Well, I think there are three things that immediately strike me. Of course, when you read the scriptures, the Spirit will speak to you individually. And no doubt there will be many ways in which the Lord himself will speak directly to you. We'll speak more of that later. But the three things that strike me from this passage are how God intends for us to function together in teams, in communities, and in families. He doesn't want you to be alone. So many people coming out of COVID, maybe locked down and locked up with people in their families, still come out of that tragic circumstance feeling like in the words of Isaiah, like a flagstaff on a bare hilltop, alone, isolated, and afraid. I encounter people all the time whose fears and anxieties drive them into a corner, out of reach of anyone else. And then I hear good-hearted, godly people speak to me of how God is stirring their hearts and their first impulse is to ask, what should I do? And of course, that's a good impulse. It's a great impulse. The impulse of the people who were with Peter said, who shall we go with? Who should we go with? God has stirred my heart for great things. God has imprinted upon me a revelation of the need of the lost. God has struck me with a longing to see something great from my life. But immediately, the question that emerged in the hearts of the people of the book was, who's going to come with me? Now, if no one goes, then of course we must be prepared to go alone, and there are many examples of that, both in Scripture and down through history. But the most common experience, the most likely way in which God is going to work, is the way that He has always intended. Because these are the words that He spoke over His first creation It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone. It's not good for you to consider your calling in isolation. 
And it may be that you need more than one. It may mean that you need more than three or four. When Sally and I were working in the inner city of London in a community called Brixton, just, just struggling from all kinds of civil unrest and riots on the streets. And we came to that community, the, bu- the buildings barely having stopped burning. And we went with a team of missionaries who committed to work in that community or in the city of London to earn enough money so that all of us could have a common purse, a shared income, to take on the great task of seeing God push back the tide of darkness and death. We, we began to create and multiply small groups in people's homes. These were tiny little apartments called flats in England. We encouraged them to live an up-in-out lifestyle, up towards God, in towards one another, out towards the world. And of course, they longed to see people come to know Jesus. But what we discovered was this. Those small groups were small enough to care, but they were not big enough to dare. Peter turned up at Cornelius' house with a whole gang of people. It's interesting, isn't it? Perhaps the person who's maybe along with Paul the most famous character aside from Jesus in the New Testament doesn't think that he can operate outside of community. We need one another to be able to do the great things that God wants us to do. And of course it's right that you have a quiet time. It's right that you spend time privately reading the scriptures alone in prayer. But for me, it would be impossible for me to do any of the things that God has called me to do if I didn't meet every day with others to pray. And when I say every day, I mean every day for the last 30 years. Every day. And you say, well, you, mean, you don't really mean every day. Yeah, I mean every day. Well, what about your day off? I mean every day. What do you want to do? What part of the world do you want to change? You probably won't do it by yourself. You probably won't. I I just want to tell you that. It's unlikely that the great things that God has put into your heart are even possible by yourself. And you look around and you think, I don't know, I mean, the people that God's put in my life, I don't know whether they're up to the standard. Well, they're thinking the same thing about you. (laughs) So take the ones that God has given you, play the cards that he puts in your hand. Be grateful and gracious and go for it. That's a good sermon outline for somebody if they want it. Grateful, gracious, go for it. Gary Palmer's just writing that down right now. (laughs) Did you get that, Gary? (laughs) He's great at sermon outlines. So, 
So the first thing that strikes me is community. You know, when we moved from, uh, from London, we went then to Arkansas and then came back from Arkansas to work in Sheffield in the north of England. We lived this weird transatlantic life and uh, now we're Americans, we're not going back. Um, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, that one person that agrees with that sentiment. And, um, and here's the thing, when, when we were working in Sheffield, God brought revival and the church was so full four times a day that we couldn't get everybody in and people were sitting on the window ledges and hanging out the back doors and God was causing such a stirring in the hearts of people that that people would shake under the power of God just by coming into the building. And some people came into the building unconverted and were unable to get up from the pew until they bowed the knee to Jesus. One young woman, she was there after everybody left. And I said to her, it's time to go now. She said, I can't move. I said, yeah, I know, but, you know, really. She said, no, I'm serious. I literally can't move my body. And I said, well, what do you think it means? She said, well, you were talking about submitting to Jesus today. What is that? And I explained it. And she said, well, how would I represent that? I said, well, why don't you kneel down? And she knelt down and she was able to leave. Of course, she's a believer and doing all kinds of things today. So that kind of causes a stir in the hearts of the people, and not least of which in the dear old Church of England, who had no idea how to put that into any category of Understanding It certainly wasn't in the prayer book. And so we decided that we were going to make the great trek from the suburbs of Sheffield back into the inner city where the church had left the poor behind. Like here, the great churches are not in the centers of our cities. They're in the suburbs where the leafy glades and well-manicured lawns are found. And so we decided that we'd go back. We had this beautiful old parish church and this old parish church was just not big enough for all the things that we needed to do. But there in the city center, was the Olympic swimming pool and gymnasium. It was the worst building to worship in ever designed by a human hand. But it seemed the right place to go. And eventually, God opened up to us a bankrupt disco hall called the Roxy, which is the largest dance hall in the north of England where the Rolling Stones had played and we decided that that was the perfect venue. But when we spoke to people who were the experts, they said to us, well, you won't be able to move that many people back into the city center. How, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, they're going to just move in community. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's not a, I mean, that many people is not a community. How, how are they going to, and I said, well, they're all functioning in, in what we call clusters. They're all functioning in missional communities, in house churches. And they said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, everyone's got a name, and we told them to design a flag. And they're going to raise the flag in that big room, and all their people are going to gather to them, 
and they're going to worship in communities of 20 and 30 in this great crowd. And they said, oh, you'll never pull it off. We grew numerically and financially by making that big transition that nobody believed was possible. How was it possible? Because we functioned in community. Some of you may be thinking, is it just that the staff want a day off on July the 4th? It isn't. We genuinely think it would be a good thing on July the 4th, Independence Day in America, Thanksgiving in England. Just a joke there, right? Okay. Um, on, on July, <laughs> that always makes me laugh every time I think about that. On July the 4th, it would be a great day when everybody's thinking, well, I've got to fit church in somehow, for you to fit all of your neighbors and your friends and your family into your backyards and into your homes. I mean, hopefully it's a great day. Wouldn't that be a great day for mission? Chris and I will come up with something for worship and word that day, and you'll be able to pick it up whenever you need to. Let's do it in community. The second thing that strikes me about this passage are the words of Peter. He has been raised believing that he is God's favorite, not individually but collectively as part of the people of God. He has heard words like these words from Deuteronomy 32, I found him in a howling wilderness. He was the apple of my eye. I stirred up his nest and bore him away on eagle's wings. The people of Israel read those words knowing that God was addressing them collectively as an individual son. The son that was blessed, the son that was first, the son that was most favored, the son, the son of God. Peter had been raised with this understanding that he and the people of the covenant were the people who were most favored by the living God. Now to move that imprint that has been built into the life of a young boy and has been reinforced over and over again by the teachings of the rabbis and by the readings of scripture and by the cycle of festivals every year. To move that paradigm required an amazing revelation. God lowering a sheet from the heavens with all of the unclean animals in it and God saying, kill and eat. The words of Jesus in my Bible written in red, kill and eat. Peter, get up. I've never done anything like that, says Peter. All of these things have been so invested in him that you know what's going to come out of him. And as he gathers in the home of a forbidden Gentile, as he gathers 
in the home of people contaminated by sin. As he gathers in the home with other Jewish followers of Jesus in the place of degradation, he realizes that God doesn't show favoritism. Now, everybody knows that from a technical point of view. Everybody knows that God is a God of equality. Everybody knows that God is a God who, who extends equal, unconditional love to every human being on the planet and that that has been made manifest and revealed perfectly in the person of Jesus who has given his life for everyone. Everyone knows that. It's just hard to live it. So I'm going to help you today to understand from a fresh perspective. Sometimes, you know, whenever you're walking a landscape, maybe you're a hiker, maybe you're a climber, maybe you're a, a mountaineer. We used to do a lot of that when we were young people. And when you become familiar with a landscape, sometimes it's good just to change it up a bit. When you're familiar with going to a particular location in your vehicle using one particular route, it's sometimes fun to go by another route, isn't it? Just find another way. And then you become able to see the place that you're looking at from a fresh perspective and you get entirely different ideas. Well, how about this? How about this? God does have a favorite. God doesn't show favoritism, but he does have a favorite. Okay. Keep going. Well, in the Old Testament, it appears as though God is saying, you are the apple of my eye. Now, you know, this is a, this is a word that's passed into popular parlance. And what it means is that the very center of your eye, the pupil, is focused in one location and sees nothing else. So the people of, the, of God in the Old Testament are the apple of God's eye. But God is speaking prophetically, not of his son collectively in the people of God in the Old Testament, but of course prophetically of his own only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so here is his son, his only begotten son, and I guess most people would think, I mean, it's entirely legitimate for God to have a favorite in Jesus, isn't it? I mean, you know, do you think he's deserving of that status? And here's the thing. All of the Old Testament prophecies, of course, align and are fulfilled in him. And as the ancient people of God recognize the Messiah as the Son of the living God, then all of the prophecies spoken over the people of God come alive in them. And they say, of course, But here's the amazing thing. 
Jesus, the apple of God's eye, doesn't act like a favorite, but includes you in that favored status. Here's the amazing thing. There is a favorite, and everybody gets to be it. Oh, wait a minute. That's a whole nother angle. There is a favorite, and you get to share in that status. How about that? You see, many of us would be thinking, well, there's no favorites, and it's because we're all worms. And, you know, we, obviously we can't look above the, the stems of grass in which we grovel day by day. We all know we're sinners. We all know that we're unspeakably lost and fallen. We know that. And so we say, well, God's got no favorites, obviously, because we're all rubbish. There's nothing to commend us to God. And of course, that's absolutely true. But here's the amazing truth of the gospel. The favorite of God has opened his identity to you and you get to share in his life with him. The great favorite of the living God, the apple of his eye, extends his identity to you and you get to live in him as he lives in you and you are God's favorite. And you can live every day as God's favorite. Isn't that amazing? I love that. Just, just, just turn to your neighbor and say, by the way, I'm God's favorite. Just have a go. Go on, go on, have a go. See what they say. Now, if you walked this world in the knowledge that the favored status of the only begotten Son of the Father had been extended to you every minute of every day. It would change the way you walk. It would change the way you live. It would change the way you converse. It would change the way that you operate. You would operate with a level of dignity and joyful graciousness seeking to invite others into your favored status, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you look for ways in which to bless and encourage other people? Last night we were sitting around, we were off to see a movie that I really think everybody, you know, sometimes I recommend movies and then Sally says, oh, do you remember that scene? And I think, oh, okay. Um, but, but this movie, awesome. In the Heights, best musical I've seen since Oliver. And that shows how old I am. <laughs> but I mean, it's amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So we were on our way there last night. We had a quick appetizer at a little place on the way over there. I forget what they call it. Breens or something. Brios, not Breens. Brios. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're just there and someone says to the, to the waitress, wow, your nails are amazing. 
And I thought, good for you. That's the kind of thing I say and everybody gets embarrassed. Good for you. And she looked at me and she went, yeah, I know, but they're a little bit kind of over the top, aren't they? And I said, well, you, you do look like a cast member from Twilight, but other than that, that's for the millennials and the Gen Z people, that most of you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but she, did, she, she just thought that this was a cool thing. And she was kind of embarrassed and like joyful and happy that we noticed it. If you are, if you are God's favored one, wouldn't you want to be gracious to everybody else? If you walk with that stature and status every day, wouldn't you want to reach down, lift up the lowly? Wouldn't you want to raise the chin of the heads that are bowed? Wouldn't you want to strengthen and encourage the hearts of those that are failing? If we walked this world with our true identity and status, you would cut a path through the people that you meet with grace and generosity and kindness in such a way that people would want to know. I know that for sure. And of course, you do that because you know what you've been given. This amazing position, this amazing favor, this amazing status, and you want everyone to share in it because it's available to all. So that's the second thing that strikes me about this passage. And we've got just enough time to look at the third. I talked before about the call on each one of us to live above the level of mediocrity. And of course, if we lived in this favored state every day, we certainly would not be groveling around with the rest of the world hoping to find scraps of grace. But I think one thing in this passage that strikes me, that gives me an indication that the people of this story are not satisfied with mediocrity is the fact that they live a revelatory life. It's one thing to walk around knowing that you have God's favored status. It's another thing to hear his whispered word in your heart every day, every moment, in every circumstance. You see, I think the difference between those who live this kind of mediocre, half-baked, hopeful Christianity and those who have opened their wings and flown from the nest that God is stirring up, knowing that they'll be caught on his pinions. 
The difference is that they live a revelatory life where they know that God speaks to them when they open the word. They know that God speaks to them when they bow to pray. They know that God is speaking to them all the time. They know that the words of Jesus are true. My sheep hear my voice. And they know that they're one of the flock of Jesus. And because they're a member of the flock, they know that they can live this revelatory lifestyle. And it's a revelatory lifestyle that, that, is, that is communicated to us in a whole number of different ways. You know, there are people sitting right now and saying, well, I don't think I've ever heard a voice from heaven. Well, join the club of most people. But most people who live the revelatory life don't hear God's voice out loud either. Peter saw a vision from heaven in the midst of a dream that he was having. Do you, do you note your dreams in the morning? Write down the revelation. The scriptures say, though it tarry, it will surely come. Do you know that it's a revelation or not? When you pray and you get those things that fill your mind and you think, oh, I'm getting distracted by, by pictures and images. And, have you ever thought that maybe God is speaking to you? That you're the kind of person that he's wired to hear him through visions and dreams and pictures and, and, and vistas that open in your heart and mind. What prompted, what prompted the men to follow Peter? Was it just a kind of a inner sense of rightness? My guess is that at least for some of them it was. Because one of the most familiar ways in which God speaks is to activate a wiring that is very common amongst humanity. The wiring of internal feelings. Now you see, clever preachers, people who live their life in words, say, whoa, sounds risky. Well, what made you first love your wife? Was it a voice from heaven? Was it something that you read in the Bible? Or was it just that feeling? And is it a feeling that you can count on? And is it a feeling that you can stand on? And is it a feeling that communicates to you rightness and wrongness? Of course. There are whole hosts of people who have been deactivated in their capacity to hear God simply because they've been told not to trust their feelings. Do this. Listen to your feelings and test them by the word of God. How about that? Listen to your feelings. Listen to your heart. Wow, sounds like I'm about to start singing. <laughs> Listen. What is being said to you in the inner chambers of your inner life? 
share the crazy pictures that you've got. Share the bonkers visions that you've had. Share the wild and wacky dreams that you've had. And, 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 and have other people who are mature enough to help you, just to interact with you, help them speak into it. This is what the scriptures say. Two or three prophets will speak and the others will wait. So here's the thing. It's not revelation that's the problem. It's interpretation that's the problem. See, there are three things to hearing God. There's revelation, there's interpretation, and there's application. Now, if the revelation is coming through a wiring that God has created for you to function in, your thoughts, your, your picture, your dream life, your feelings life, if, if your wiring is such that God has created you to receive and to be activated in his revelatory communication with you in such a way, then receive it and, and joyfully embrace it and accept it. And then test it in community by the word of God. And then we start to grow. And this tiny little muscle. You know, I work with... Um, I work with a trainer right now. He gives me these things that, you know, designed to make me feel bad. And, and I, I was talking to him the other day and he said, now I want you to do this little exercise here and it's for this tiny little muscle in your shoulder blade. And I said, oh, okay. What size weight am I going to use? He said, about five pounds. Five pounds? My Bible's heavier than that. What are you talking about? He says, no, but you've got to do it in this particular way. And I said, well, he said, well, it's a tiny, tiny little muscle. But if you'll grow it, it'll help you to stand better. It'll help you to, to get your shoulders further. And, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And I start activating it. It's like, oh, I don't want to do that ever again. Because it's like someone's got this knife and they're just sticking it in this tiny little place in your back. That's what your capacity to hear God is like right now. It's a tiny little muscle. But if you'll stretch it, it will grow. If you'll use it, it will grow. If you will have other people help you with it, it will grow. And as it grows, it will cause you to stand taller It'll cause you to stand with your shoulders back. It'll cause you to spread your wings and soar like eagles. What a day it would be if the majority of the people of God lived the revelatory lifestyle. Wouldn't that be amazing? Where every day we're saying, I may be crazy, I maybe ate too much pizza last night, but I had this dream and I think it's about you. And... and I want you to test and weigh it. I don't want you to feel bound by it. I don't want you to feel kind of weird. And definitely I don't want you to hear me sounding like, you know, a kind of King James Version voice saying, thus saith the Lord. But I just give you this to weigh it because, I don't know, maybe. Read the Bible, see what God says. Wouldn't that be a good day? And I know that you long for it because I know I do too. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pray for it. How about that? Good deal?
So we've got two things we're going to pray for today. First of all, it's people who don't think they're God's favourite. If you don't think you're God's favourite, then I want to pray with you. Now I'm not going to browbeat you into believing that you're God's favourite. I'm just going to ask God to do his work. And his work is simply this, that he'll whisper in your ear the words that he spoke over his son. That because of the covenant sealed in his blood are words spoken to you. You are my child whom I love. With you I'm very pleased. He wants to say that to you. And then for those of you who long to deepen the life of revelation, Paul says this, eagerly seek all the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Why? Because we need it. Why does Peter say on the day of Pentecost, that this is to fulfill the words of the prophet Joel. That I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh. And young and old, male and female, will prophesy. All the people of God will hear the voice of the living God and be able to communicate it. Why? Because it's the birthright of the favorites. It's the birthright of the favorites. And you're God's favorite. Why wouldn't he speak to you today? So if you want to kind of settle this thing about being God's favorite that's there in pencil, but you want it today in ink, then you come and join me up here and pray. Come on, let's go now. Let's not, I'm not going to do the kind of, we'll sing just as I am once more time. And all that. Come on, let's go. Favoured status. Good lad, Benjamin. Come on. Come on, Laura. Oh, Anna, Emma. You're allowed to on the shelf as well. Come on. Let's go. I want these folks just to settle. Others need to come and join. Now, part of the thing about not feeling like a favorite is that you think first about what other people will say if you start moving. But if you are a favorite, you get to do pretty much whatever you want. And everybody thinks you're awesome. Now, obviously, the Lord will get you into line and stop you doing just whatever you want. But if you're being held back because of what others might say or think, don't do that. You just come on. You just come on. Don't hold back. And what about those of you who maybe have settled this? want to live the revelatory lifestyle why don't you come now because we can pray for everybody
you want to live that revelatory lifestyle, if you know that this is the time for you to go deeper in you hearing the voice of God, then you come. You come. You come. Bring your children. Bring your spouse. You come. may be that even as we pray and as we sing this next song that you need to join these dear ones here I'd ask those of you who are at the front just to stay just tarry a while let God speak to you Lord thank you that you chose us and you made us your favorite. Thank you, Lord, that we do not operate first from a position of servant, but we operate first from the identity of your Son, who became a servant to all. And so, Lord, I pray for each person today that they would know that they live in the identity of being your favorite. Lord, thank you that you called us to be one with you. And Lord, I pray now that your spirit would be released on each person afresh in a deeper way. That Lord, confidence would come into the hearts of each person that as they dream and as they pray and as they see visions and, and feel sensations of what the scriptures say is the hand of God a burning in their bones Lord I pray that they would know and they would attend to your voice the voice of the living God Lord speak to them as you spoke to Samuel speak to them as you spoke to Peter speak to them as you spoke to Mary Speak to each of us, Lord. Take us deeper. Take us further. Lord, take us above the level of mediocrity. Let's sing together and let's continue to pray.